welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. This episode, I sit down with Seattle musician Dave Bartley. Dave picked up the guitar at age 11, having started as an orchestral percussionist at school. He eventually found his way into the contradance scene and has played dances all over the country. Dave leads a very eclectic musical life, and in addition to contradance, he has played in rock, swing, Balkan, Greek, French cabaret, Israeli and international folk dance, ballroom dance, English country dance, and world music ensembles, as well as performing on solo classical guitar. He also plays mandolin, sittern, and a long list of other stringed and percussion instruments. All this filters into his dance music and the nearly 400 tunes he has written. Dave currently plays contra dance music with KGB, Contra Sutra, and Bag of Tricks, as well as various other combinations of musicians. He plays English country dance music with Tricky Brits and Roguery, ballroom dance music with Vals Cafe Orchestra, traditional Celtic music with Keltoy, electric Celtic music with the Irish Experience, and French cabaret music with Rouge. In our interview over Zoom, Dave and I explore the myriad of influences that have woven their way into his musical style and repertoire. He shares his perspective on the Pacific Northwest dance and music community, and he even shares a few of the secrets behind the magic of KGB. Let's get started. Bartley, welcome to ContraPulse. Hello, Julie. It's wonderful to talk with you, and I, I feel I'm joining a guest company in being a guest on ContraPulse. It's so lovely to have you here. And, you know, we're on opposite coasts. Are you currently at home? Where are you located right now? I am home right now, and I'm sitting in what is nominally a music room. I bought this house like 34 years ago, and this room... Initially, it was a recording studio, and we had the windows boarded over and all of that, and I've taken the boards off, but it still exists as a music room. 
In those days, I had a, a housemate who had a 16-track machine, so we did lots of multi-track recording down here. Like reel-to-reel? Absolutely. That's how I started recording. I still have some old track tapes that I can't listen to anymore. Yeah, same here. <laughs> oh, Lord knows what's on them. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to chatting because you're out on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast. And while we ran into each other at a dance weekend here or there, I've never really had a chance to just sit down and have a conversation with you. Same here. I've, I've been a fan. I've, I know, I think Nor'easter was at a couple of weekends that I played with, maybe with KGB and not yeah. sure who else. And I remember dancing to Buddy System one point yeah. at the Seattle dance and really enjoyed your playing. Well, shucks. I mean, I was busy fangirling on you at all the dance weekends we were at. Uh. And <laughs> so I'm just so excited to just to talk about everything. So maybe let's just start from the beginning, um, which is how did you end up, you know, playing music and choosing your instruments? And how did you eventually end up playing for concert dances? Sure. Um, well, I was born in Seattle, so I've pretty much, I've, my permanent address has always been within the greater Seattle area, though I've traveled quite a bit and did live on the East Coast briefly years ago. Um, and my family, I'm the youngest of five kids, and my parents loved music. My dad, um, I think he played a little bit of harmonica and he occasionally sang bass in a barbershop quartet, but they, neither of them were really musicians per se. Um, but I have two older brothers, two older sisters, and both of my older brothers played guitar. And they actually both played in rock bands in the 60s. Hmm. And um, when I, I, you know, I, I think as long as I can remember, I've always had music running through my head. I mean, we, had, mm -hmm. we listened to a lot of music at home. It would be, you know, folk music and pop music, rock, blues, um, some classical Things like the Clancy Brothers also and the Limelighters and um, just a whole lot of different um, styles of music. And so that was kind of filtering into my head. But I didn't really play much of anything besides poking around at a, the piano that we had until fourth grade when I was, it was determined that I should um, choose a musical instrument to play in orchestra in um, grade school. And I ended up choosing snare drum. Hmm. Um, I briefly flirted with clarinet or flute. Both of my sisters had played the flute. But I ended up, I think a, a neighbor kid said, oh, play drums, they're easy. And you know, I was lazy enough that that sounded like a good idea. <laughs> So I played snare drum in grade school. And, and the other thing was, at that time, my oldest brother's band was practicing in my parents' basement. And the drummer actually left his drum set there because it was difficult to get in and out of the basement. And, and you know, they were playing stuff like the Birds and the Beatles. And, you know, this was the mid-60s when I was in grade school. And um, my ambition was to be a drummer in a rock band. I really wanted to do that. But I think my much to my mother's um, delight, I ended up starting to play guitar in sixth grade and sort of drifted away from drums, although I continued to play timpani and other things through high school in orchestra and concert band. 
And yeah, I think my mother didn't really want to have somebody perpetually banging on the drums in the basement <laughs> while she was home. And so I started playing guitar, and my next older brother sort of gave me my little launch and everything. He taught me my first 12 chords, maybe, and I remember having a lesson on um, fingerstyle, just playing like what they called Travis picking at the time, or clock picking, and and learning the blues pentatonic scale so I could um, improvise basic rock and blues. And then I would just go off and listen to recordings and just, I was mostly self-taught, but I was exposed to a lot of guitar playing. And we would have music sessions at, um, in our living room some evenings, and we would play a lot of folk stuff. Both of my brothers were really big fans of Gordon Lightfoot, so... You know, learned dozens of Gordon Lightfoot songs, but also, you know, Ian and Sylvia and some traditional things, um, stuff like the Cuddy Wren. And and um, so, so that was how I came to play guitar. And I had a best friend who played guitar and we started putting together kind of a garage rock band. We weren't very good, but... Um, and the other thing that happened around then is my oldest sister's husband at the time played classical guitar. And my dad had bought a classical guitar for my brother for when he was in high school choir. And it was still laying around the house. And the thought was my mother, who had played a little bit of guitar when she was young, might start playing it. But really, it just sat around the house, along with this method book. And I just started learning everything in the method book, just playing through it on the guitar. It just seemed interesting. And so... Um, I was also playing classical guitar while I was playing electric guitar in this rock group. And so that's, that's kind of the beginning of it. And I, I went on to, in the mid to late seventies, I played in a series of bands that through a booking agency were playing high school, um, fraternity, junior high dances like twice a week, like every Friday and Saturday, you know, I'd go to high school or college during the week. And then Friday evening, we'd head off to somewhere in Western Washington and play a dance. And then another one on Saturday night. So it played for a lot of, of playing a lot of top 40 music of the time, you know, everything yeah. from the Guess Who to Led Zeppelin to, um, oh, just a whole laundry list of bands. I mean, that's a fun decade to be in a cover band, at least. It was, you could still actually play live music for dances. I mean, DJs had not yet taken over that space. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that was, it was, I was blessed to be um, doing that at that time. Wow. How did you stumble across contra dancing? Well, I went, <laughs> so after the rock band period, I got more serious about classical guitar, I actually took lessons studied with somebody for a couple of years. Only time I ever took lessons on anything really. And then I ended up having a singer songwriter period along with the aforementioned multi-tracking that I was doing in this house. And I, through some friends, I ended up going to a contra dance in, I guess it was 1988. And I admit, I don't remember who the band was. I do remember who the caller was, Suzanne Gerardo, who's one of our local callers a long time. And I had a great time and then I didn't go back. But mm-hmm. I had a coworker. Um, my, I, I, some point in college, I decided 
rather than trying to be a professional musician, I ended up getting a degree in electrical engineering, and I took a job right out of of um, college, and I'd just play music for my pleasure on the side was the idea, and um, I ended up working with a guy who was into both Balkan music and also kind of the fiddle tunes scene in the Seattle area. And we started playing together at lunchtime. He persuaded me to bring my guitar in. Hmm. And he played fiddle, but he also played clarinet and trumpet and a whole bunch of other stuff. And at some point he said, I'm playing in this little Balkan group. Oh yeah. And then I ended up playing for the Folklife Festival, the Northwest Folklife Festival in Seattle for the first time in, I think, around 88, um, in an Italian folk band where his girlfriend played guitar. So I played mandolin, and that's actually where I learned to play mandolin was in that band. I you know, was playing mm-hmm. the Neapolitan Tarantella and all, just these Italian folk melodies on mandolin. I got my start there. We also, by the way, played in a group that had been formed to play a Appalachian suite for a Balkan performance group called Radost out of Seattle. And they called themselves the Carpathian Ridge Runners. And they had a, which I think is a great name, but they had yeah. a gig at Folklife, but pretty much all the other members of the band bagged out before the weekend. So he was left looking for somebody to play with. So he and I played as a duo and it was all this music that was like kind of shoving Balkan rhythms and fiddle tunes together. So we played Cluck Old Hen as a Deichevo in 9-8. And we, I mean, it was Whoa. just stuff like that. Um, we had this medley of Kitty McGee and Sweeping the Town, which are pretty similar, jig and reel. And then we play the same melody in 7-8 as a Richnitza. And so anyway, I did those two things. And then shortly after, he said, I'm playing in this pickup Balkan band, and we've got a gig, and we kind of need another member. Would you be willing to play bass with us? And my housemate had a Fender Precision, and so I, I just borrowed it from him. I said, sure, I'll do it. And there, the accordion player was this woman named Mary DeFelice in that group. And that is how Mary and I met. And she was, wow. she was going regularly to the um, – there were – three dances in Seattle, contra dances in Seattle at that time. But the big one was on Thursday nights at the Ballard Eagles. It was a building that doesn't exist anymore. And so I started occasionally going to the dances with her. And she also persuaded me to join this English country dance performance group called None Such. And I'd never heard of English country dance. I'd never done it, but the first thing I did was memorize all these dances and then perform them on stage. Mm-hmm. And they had live music and the musicians at some point, some of the dancers would go back and forth between playing and dancing. So I started doing that. And the f- fiddle player at that time was a woman named Sean Hubbard, who was um, an original member in a group called Scott's Broom that had played for the first Saturday dance there were also Saturday dances in Seattle at that time. They were all owned by various bands, Salmonberry and so on. And their mandolin and guitar player was leaving the group, and so she asked if I'd join. And so I started playing for contra dance. And you know, what instrument did you start on? Well, I was playing. Um, Julie King was in that band, 
And I, we can get to the point of sort of listing my band history, but um, that was Julie was also, I think, playing in the for the English for Nunsuch, mm-hmm. but she only played half time. And so when she was playing with the group, I played mandolin. And she, when she wasn't playing with the group, I played guitar. I was the backup player. So I basically it was both. Interesting. Yeah. So I got to learn the ropes kind of as both a backup player and a melody player alternating months. Yeah. Which was more difficult to learn or more challenging as you were a new contra musician? They each have different things you have to learn. Yeah. I think probably... Um, I, I had learned, so my next older brother, John, played bluegrass in the 70s, and he actually played at the first few um, Northwest Folklife Festivals with a group called um, Mountain County Co-op. And he and I would play bluegrass together, and, and he played mandolin in that group, although he was mainly a guitar player. So I would play guitar with him. So I kind of, I'd learned boomchuck from that time. Mm-hmm. And at some point we learned a just a small number of fiddle tunes as a melody duet. I think it was like the Swallowtail Jig and um, Off She Goes or Haste to the Wedding. I can't remember. And so I was, you know, familiar. And then I'd been playing fiddle tunes with this friend from work who had introduced me to Mary subsequently. But to actually play for dance, I don't recall that one was more difficult than the other. I mean, I was more familiar with guitar as an instrument because I'd been playing it for longer. Mm-hmm. And there were two other melody players in the group, um, a fiddler, well, actually three others. There was Sean, and then Mike Richardson was playing fiddle with that group. He's known more as a dance composer, I think, these days. Um, there's a couple of his dances that show up pretty regularly in programs, um, Star Trek and Monday Night and Ballard. Um, and then a melodeon player named Phil Katz was also in that group. Um, and so as a melody player, I was one of three melody players and, you know, they were, their approach to the music was pretty traditional, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, Mike was writing some tunes. Um, Phil was often collecting things. He'd go back to, he always went to like Ralph Page, um, Legacy Weekend and he'd been up. He'd collected a bunch of stuff from Newfoundland and various other places. So, we, but it was all pretty traditional, you know, Shetland, Cape Breton, New England. I learned all the chestnuts in that group, hmm. um, and love them to this day. I just, you know, we had we danced to chorus jig at my wedding reception because that was, you know, Mary had these great memories of it, and I, I love dancing chorus jig. It's just so much fun. Um, but so I think I I was learning as I went, I, I could read music, um, which was helpful. And I was certainly learning the styling by listening to who I was playing with. And I sometime around the time, same time started playing in a second group called Apple Maggot Quarantine, another great band name. It was a a fiddler player, fiddler named uh, Stephen Trampy who played in child's play and always went to fiddle tunes. And so we were getting a lot of the latest stuff that was coming to the Northwest through the staff at the Northwest Festival of Fiddle Tunes. 
and a flautist named Arna Reinert, who also played in Scott's Room, and then Julie was in that band. So I was getting mm-hmm. this big influx of music, um, and I was listening to groups. Um, the The dance that really opened my eyes to what contradance music could be was around, I think it was probably in 1989, around the time of the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes, the Bay Area band, the Hillbillies from Mars, mm. played with Rodney Miller. And um, then this, I think they had this drummer from Ghana who lived in Seattle. Anyway, it was like, oh my God, th- there's all this non-traditional treatment of tunes. And, and I thought, and it was danceable. And because I had a pretty varied background that interested me a great deal. And I found that that gig was just really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, of course, really in, still enjoyed playing traditionally, but that I sort of filed that away as, oh, this would be really fun to do. Yeah. Like these things are possible and something sparked a kinship with you and your eclectic nature and your desire to explore these things. Yeah. And I remember around that time, there also was a group that played it about once a year, I think it was the Canote Twins. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, they're so great. They're the life of every party they're in. And um, Sandy Silva, when she she was still living here on percussion and Dave Kahn. And they were, they called themselves Boom Boom Room. And they basically played Afro pop contra. You know, treatments like wow. Afro pop treatments. Like I think Jerry was playing a octopad, you know, one of these electronic eight pad things, and he had each of them set to a different marimba note. So he was basically playing a digital marimba. And Dave Kahn was playing electric guitar and um, playing kind of that dry South African style. Anyway, that was another like, oh, this is really cool. I mean, all the jigs are really slow, but. For the right dances, they worked. What was Sandy's role in the band? She played conga. Oh, wow. Cool. Did she do any dancing? Not in that band. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly saw her do a lot of um, uh, her style of kind of merging clogging with others, you know, like Hungarian and all these other styles of physical body percussion dance. Um, Yeah, it was... Yeah, for... For our listeners, we'll put a link to uh, some videos of Sandy dancing. It's worth watching if you haven't seen her before. Yeah, she later danced, of course, with La Boutine Suriant, and you know, she, when she was living in Quebec. I think she may still be living there. Yeah, she came to Boston a couple of years ago uh, with a cool video dance project she was doing, and I got to see her there. Oh, fantastic. Really neat, really neat stuff. So we'll link to some of her things. Because, you know, it's another form of like rhythmic accompaniment for music. Yeah, and she is step dancing. And she has her own really unique amalgamation of, you know, her own style that comes from a lot of different influences. But with real soul though too. Yeah. So you started playing a band that you know, was kind of more traditional, like straightforward contra fair, it sounds like, and tunes collected from a variety of different traditions. Um, and then it seems like you had a few different inspirations of other ways that things could be. And then 
how did KGB come about? It sounds like you and Julie have been playing together since your start playing for Contra Dancing way back in the beginning. Yeah, pretty much. And um, I, so Mary and I got married um, in 1991. And I think around that time, there used to be, I think Mike Richardson um, organized this ski dance weekend at Mount Rainier um, once a year. Some I can't remember what, you know, it was obviously in the winter at some point. And Mary and I went one time and Claude and Julie were the music staff for it. They were playing together. And this was maybe 1990. Anyway, and... Um, we ended up having breakfast with Claude and Lynn, what Mary and I did on the last morning. And, and I, I don't know, we just got to talking and, you know, connected. And time went by. And I remember going to another gig. It was Claude and Julie and Larry Andrews, I think, played a, um, a New Year's dance. And so I heard them play together a, a number of times. And at Folk Life in 1992, Claude approached me and said, would you be interested in joining Julie and me for a recording project? We're planning to record a cassette, because that's what you did in those days. Yeah. And it happened that Mary and I had decided we were going to rent our house out for a year and travel, and travel around the country. So I said, I'd love to, but I'm not going to be here, because <laughs> we were leaving in August, and they weren't there's about when they were going to start. I said, let's play when we get back. And so we, we got back, and the following summer, I think it was Mike organized a special dance at a, it was like upstairs at a old elementary school on an incredibly hot night, it turned out. And Claude, Julie, and I played for it. We didn't have a name. It was just the three of us. And Mike called. And that was a revelation. I mean, I had spent in my youth, had spent a lot of time jamming with people, you know, and that was probably incredibly boring to listen to, but it was sure fun to do. You know, we would play some, I don't know, we were playing tunes by late 70s bands, but then I'd get to play a guitar solo for 10 minutes, you know, pretend I was Carlos <laughs> Santana or something. And, I mean, I'd learned, you know, I memorized a lot of like Jimmy Page solos and all that kind of thing from my day. Yeah. And then got really into progressive rock. So I was learning, you know, Steve Hackett and Steve Howe and you know, from guitar players from Genesis and Yes and all of that stuff. And um, like Greg Lake's solo from Carnival 9 Part 1 by you know Emerson Lake and Palmer, all that. But so I jammed a lot. And the way we approached the contra dance music, we were playing tunes like, you know, Walker Street or whatever, I mean, traditional stuff. But we would just go off and improvise. Claude and I would just improvise back and forth at each other through the course of the dance while maintaining enough structure so the dancers knew where B1 was. But Julie really was our anchor. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. But we just had the, the funnest time. And the thing was... I was relatively new to contra dance. Claude had been doing it since the 80s, and Julie had been doing it since the 80s, and they were good at watching the dancers. And I was learning that through my time with Scott Sproom, but I was still pretty new to it then. But we had so much fun. We said, we got to keep doing this. And I had started writing tunes a bit too, and it was a great um, vehicle for... And my early tunes were a little more... 
many of them maybe had a few too many ideas. And, <laughs> you know, how when you sort of start writing, you, anyway. I think one of the um, the earliest ones that I still play is Trip to Sofia, which conceived of as a Bulgarian-Irish reel. And it's mm-hmm. in A. Hijaz. It's, I wrote, I think, a year before Larry wrote um, Beth Cohen's, but it's kind of in a very sim- uh-huh. similar vein. And so we started playing things like that. And um, I think Julie came up with the name. Like BLT was a group in those days, um, Kate Barnes and Bill Chop, um, Mary Lee and Bill Tomchak. And Mary said, well, we could be KGB <laughs> with our last names, <laughs> King Ginsburg Bartley. And he said, okay, we'll use that until we come up with a better name. But we can never agree on one. So, and then... Oh, my gosh. By the time we played our first dance camp and then we recorded our first, we, had, we were going to record a CD and it's like, well, I guess we're KGB and that's that. Yeah, looking back on it now, would you rather spend your musical career in a band named after a sandwich or after Russian spy organization? <laughs> well, I'll say the sandwich is less controversial. You know, we, I mean, we start, our first gig was in 1993 and it seemed kind of funny then because, you know, the Berlin Wall had come down and the right. Soviet Union broke up. And it seems a little less funny now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we're stuck with it. It would be, um, I, I suppose if Facebook can change their name to Meta, I suppose we could change our name. But um, we don't quite have the um, branding money behind doing a shift in our name. So we probably won't. I feel like after a while, most names just become what they are and they stop being associated with the original thing, you know? Like yeah. People just know if you guys is KGB. I don't think they get you confused. Well, you know, it gave it also provided fodder for, you know, tune names, you know. I would right. I would not have conceived of Vladdy on the Trans-Siberian if, as a riff on Patty on the Railroad, but, you know, a Russian version, if I had not been in KGB. <laughs> So, for instance, I can't believe it never occurred to me that that, of course, that's where that tune name came from. It literally <laughs> never occurred to me, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the tune itself is not even vaguely Russian. I was trying to write sort of a Cajun Zydeco contra tune, but but I didn't have a funny Cajun Zydeco name, so yeah, and it ended up being this kind of great syncopated, poppy, catchy contra e tune. Like, that's a a true a modern contra tune as any, right? I think so. Yeah, and it it you know it got legs when I think Rex Blazer recorded it with the Lift Ticket, and then of course Perpetually Motion. I think were the group that sort of propagated it to the the world, which I greatly appreciate. You know, you never know when you write tunes. You always hope that there will be a tune that people will start playing, and it'll go beyond you, and maybe people won't even know who wrote it. And for yeah. me, I think that's the main one. Yeah. I mean, that tune, The it's singable, it's catchy, it's fun, you know, it's got everything you need. Thank you. And it does kind of have this chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga thing going in the in the A part, so I guess having it having a railroad name isn't that inappropriate.
when you started KGB and started kind of exploring all the different musical directions that the three of you wanted to go in, what was like the context for that? Like, were there other bands doing that? Was it common at Contra Dances? Did you get a reaction at first from people? Like you were the first ones doing that? Well, we were early, but I don't think we were the first. I mean, certainly, you know, Wild yeah. Asparagus was broadening. This guy in Swallowtail before them had broadened the scope yeah. a, a certain amount. And I um, had heard the Swallowtail LP and heard, you know, along with like Foregone Conclusions and the New England Chestnuts and a lot of mm-hmm. the recordings. The Hillbillies from Mars were definitely an influence. Um, and I also think, um, I don't remember exactly when I heard them, but um, the Clayfoot Strutters did a lot of different, really, I mean, I love the Going Elsewhere album. That was mm-hmm. one that I, I listened to a lot. Um, and so I was hearing a certain amount of that. But the other thing was I was in parallel with playing um, contra dance music. I was also initially playing in an international folk dance band that had grown out of an Israeli folk dance band. In fact, Mary and I played together in that group initially. Hmm. And then I started playing in a Balkan band that was playing primarily Bulgarian and Greek stuff. And so I was exposed to all of this music of the Balkans, which I hadn't heard when I was younger. And I also, I'm trying to think what else was going on. So there was that. And then Claude had all these other influences. He was, and still is, really into Argentine tango. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he actually went down to Buenos Aires a few times to study down there. And he also played Brazilian parade samba for a while and he had some he and i just had these parallel backgrounds like i I played in all these rock bands he also was playing like acid rock and jazz fusion when he was in college um back in baltimore was where he was in those days and so we both brought a lot of different genre kind of to the game and i think we just both gradually inched in a bit at a time um, trying new things. I, I would listen to something and go, God, I wonder if that would work for a contra dance. You know, and, and there were the things like TV theme songs and classical tunes and jingles. And, you know, I mean, people have used a lot of those things. Yeah. Um, and we have as well. I mean, the only one I think we recorded was um, using a, squaring up of the Abanera, um Love as a Fickle Bird from Carmen by Bizet mm-hmm. um, in a medley with Frenchie's Reel, as I recall. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's Frenchie's a, being one of those old workhorse kind of Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice contrast from this happy B-flat to this D minor, D major kind of dramatic thing. But, um, and so there was a certain amount of that. Um, I remember adapting the hoedown from Rodeo Suite. One time we did that. And then I heard Rum and Onion's version of the entire thing at Nefa, I think, and went, oh my God, that's the last word. <laughs> but um, yeah, so first was the idea of using Balkan tonalities, but, you know, contradance rhythms. And just over the years, we just kind of worked in a whole lot of other influences. 
while still Can you playing describe? traditional stuff. I mean, we've got uh-huh. a bunch of French Canadian tunes we play. There's, you know, we'll play like um, Ross's Real Number Four and and um, with um, Batchelders, I think, and that kind of thing. Still, but I'm all about variety. I like the like the this set can't be anything like the last set. Mm-hmm. But it still has to fit the dance. But it's like, what can we do now that, you know, the last one was moody and minor. Now this be uplifting and major or whatever. So when you play tunes like Ross is Real and Batch Elders, are you treating them more in that traditional kind of New england sort of sound? Or are you playing the tunes and then doing whatever you want to them? I mean, in KGB, mostly. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll vary the melody. And, and of course, who... Claude and I just sort of have this loose rule. We typically just alternate times through. It just Mm -hmm. requires, then we don't have to think, you know. And I mean, when we recorded something, we kind of follow the arrangement and pad it out as needed for the full 17 times through or whatever that the dance is going to, we ends up being. Um, But what the other person is doing, you know, we'll, we've played together for so long now. Um, but even fairly early, we achieved a rapport where we could kind of sense where the other one was going. And we mm-hmm. kind of just go there together, you know, play something to complement or to reinforce. Or, and um, so, but those, typically we do them a little more traditionally. You know, and somewhere along the way, I learned to do foot percussion. Um, Claude, actually, on the very first um KGB recording contraintelligence. We did a French Canadian medley that included like Real de Montreal and and Claude did the foot percussion because I'd never done it. Mm-hmm. But so I, I learned after that. I think I would at work I'd be typing at the computer keyboard and doing Quebecois feet while I was typing to kind of get the independence. It's a good way to practice. Yeah, it, yeah. it worked pretty well. Um but okay, I've, I've kind of lost the thread. Oh yeah, so yes, we'll we'll do those traditionally. Generally, um, when I'm one of the melody players, I don't tend to be quite as I don't tend to have as much flexibility to take things way off in another direction. Unlike like another group I'm in, Contra Sutra, I'm the backup player along with a percussionist, and I'm mm-hmm. pretty unabashed in just doing something. I'll come up with some concept. Like one of my favorites is doing a disco funk version of the growling old man and grumbling old woman. So what kind of groove is that? Um, oh, I'll go grab a guitar, see if I can do it. Oh, fun. Lucky this will be remotely in tune. It was tuned at the factory, so I'm optimistic. <laughs> and I actually did, um, played it, actually played a live contra dance last I don't know, recently. In person? Yeah. Masked wow. dancers. There are like 75 dancers. It was and as far as I know, nobody got sick. So Huh. Thinking. Yeah, this is early November now, twenty twenty one. So yes, it's been it a year is. and a half. Yeah. No contras. Yeah. I think I think so. Maybe something like this. And and I'd have my octave pedal on, of course, for this. You know, and then above that. But that would be mm-hmm. the idea. It was something, I think it was like Saturday morning at Cabin Fever. And I was thinking the energy was kind of sagging a little. And I thought, yeah, you know, we need to do something to pick this up. 
And yeah. that group had a medley of, of growling and grumbling. And then um, uh, Dancing Bear, actually, was the other one. And so, yeah, so I kind of turned it into a sort of a, I don't know, theme from Shaft kind of thing. I mean, tunes like that are great for a treatment like this because they're pretty repetitive, which is what makes them kind of trancey. Yeah. And so they don't have a lot of chord changes. The tune, the rhythm is built into the tune. Yes, it in is. In a way, so you just have to change the groove that you play the tune in, and then you can do all these things underneath right. it. Right, and and sometimes I would because I I've got a um, the thing I use for a direct box is an effect a zoom effects box that actually has a thirty two second looper in it too, so I would loop that part sometimes so I could do something else with it. Um, but also we had a percussionist, you know, drummer, so that meant I didn't have to fill all the rhythmic space as well. Right. Which is fun if you want to do some groovy things as a rhythm player because, you know, you could take a solo, you can be really sparse, let the drummer fill it out. And I just, I don't know, I feel like a groove like that, it's best with a rhythm section where you can really lock in and like get into this deep pocket, which is what makes the groove really satisfying. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so over time we just, you know, I thought, gee, it'd be fun to, I'd heard other groups introduce African elements um, and Caribbean, sort of Afro-Caribbean things. And my tendency, we, we can talk about tune writing at some point, but as a tune writer, I'm often, sometimes like melodies come to me, but other times I'm just trying to fill a gap or solve a problem. It's like, hmm. you know, we don't have enough tunes with balances in the B. I'm going to write something. Because I remember KGB played this dance camp early on. And by Sunday morning, we'd, it was, we were working with a caller who did lots of balances. Just most of the dances they called were had balances in them. We were running out of things in our set. I thought, you know, I'm just going to write some. I mean, I know we could go find them. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of tunes. But, but it was sort of like, this is an assignment. I remember doing that once when we'd used up our slinky jigs at a weekend and the caller said, I'm uh -huh. going to call this great set that needs slinky jigs this afternoon. Um, but anyway, another thing I would do is come up with a concept and say, I want to write like an Afropop tune that would fit contradance. You know, rather than adapting something from the genre, I would try to write something in the style of the genre, but had the kind of the 32 bar works well between 112, 120 beats per minute, you know, right. phrases that are discernible and so on. I mean, so. sometimes that's the best way to do it rather than trying to shoehorn a tune from another tradition into Contra. That's what I found. I've, I, I once, I'd forgotten about this actually, but um, I played in a number of groups with a fiddler named Deb Kirkland um, locally. I don't know that she's toured, so you might not be familiar with her. But she had this conception of having kind of string quartet contras. Mm -hmm. And we played one or two dances at the Thursday nights at Ballard Eagles with a cello player, and I think maybe a viola player. And then I was kind of the second violin on mandolin. Hmm. And she had sort of figured out a 32-bar 32, 32 phrases from 
like Haydn and Mozart string quartets. <laughs> and we would play like a regular contra dance tune until the dance was established. And then we'd go and do this classical, you know, period thing or Baroque period. And then go, anyway, it was a thing. And we didn't have a whole night of them, but <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting so, idea. But that was probably the, the greatest stretch of adaptation I've run across. And something like that, where does the dance rhythm come from? Is it like arpeggios in the music itself? Is it kind of like yeah. a counterpoint or a fugue feeling? Well, you know, a lot of the steel galant and, and early classical music in the quartets, often somebody would be going, doot, 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 doot. you know, there, yeah. there was enough rhythm going on. I mean, yeah. we were adapting from kind of like the rondo movement or maybe if the, the you know, the sonata allegra, the first movement was of the right tempo, you could use it. I don't know that. She was the one doing the adaptations. I was just playing second fiddle, as it were. That's fun. It's fun when someone else does all that, you know, thinking work. Yeah. <laughs> You just yeah. get to go along for the ride. And, you know, over time, I remember playing Miserlou, I think, for a contra at one point, the, the Greek tune, um, mm -hmm. and various other things. So we did our share of adaptation, but a lot of times I found it easier to start from scratch. I remember... Isn't, uh, isn't yeah. Miserlou also the famous surf guitar track now, oh, too? Like, didn't yeah. they adapt that for surf guitar? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that one. Yeah, just our Sorry, listeners. My, my, I think my double picking be... isn't. I, I have to warm it up. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just thinking that's where our listeners are probably most familiar with that too. Wasn't that like the Pulp Fiction soundtrack or something? Pulp Fiction, Am I remembering yeah. this right? Yeah, that was this. Um, that version. I mean, there's the, the the original and the and the the international dance version. You know, is more like. Is about that speed, but yeah, mm -hmm. this surf guitar player by the name of Dick Dale, who I think was of I can't remember Greek. I'm not sure extraction. Anyway, he was the one who recorded that back in the the surf guitar days, and I guess Quentin Tarantino was uh, familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite thing is movie directors who have an eclectic taste in music. It just makes the movie so much better for me. Me too. I, I remember we saw this sort of speaking of odd fusions. Um, Mary and I saw this movie. It was with Rupert Grint, you know, who played, um, he, was, he was in the Harry Potter series um, as Ron Weasley. Mm -hmm. But he was playing this other character in this, it was kind of a coming of age or romance thing. But it was set in Scotland, as I recall. And they had this one scene where there was a band playing in the background and it's this group called Salsa Celtica that's um, comprised of like traditional Scottish instruments aside a full salsa percussion and brass section. So, you know, you've got pipes and fiddle and tenor banjo and, <laughs> and they're, it's, it's a really interesting fusion. <laughs> but I heard, <laughs> I've got to learn about this group. So I've got a couple of their recordings. Anyway. Yeah, um, but I digress. But that was because the director, I think, had heard them and decided to have yeah. them play in the background. They they were out of Glasgow, I think. That's fun. 
Yeah, I mean, when you look at your list of bands that you've been in, they're all so eclectic. Like, I just feel like the word eclectic keeps coming up over and over again. You know, you do a lot of different things. I think it's kind of my strong point. I mean, I think, you know, my technique, especially because I don't rehearse much, practice much, is, is middling. But I've done a lot of different things over the years and and still do. Um, you know, in the first 10 years, I did play in a number of other groups. Um, I actually played in a band with Sue Songer, Alan Roberts, and Phil Katz called Northern Lights for a while. And mm. played in a band with Kathy Whitesides and one with Bruce Reed. And But my, and also have played all along, almost as long as KGB in a group called Bag of Tricks. Mm-hmm. which has an English alter ego, Tricky Brits, with Anita Anderson and Sandy Gillette and Betsy Cooper uh, plays in the Tricky Brits. And that is much more of a tune-oriented group. And they've played a bunch of my tunes. But we don't. We tend to stay on the melody more, um, like a traditional um, contradance band would. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's fun. It's been, and we've traveled around a bit, not as much as KGB or um, Contra Sutra, which is the group I'm in with Marnie Rockmeal and um, Ryan McCasson or Brandon Vance. We have two different fiddle players. And then we have a, a whole, um, as I say, binder full of percussionists mm-hmm. that originally it was um, Russell Shumsky uh, out of Vancouver. And then he wasn't able to come to the U.S. for some years and... So we have a whole bunch. Yeah. We've, we've worked with Ness, Smith Savadoff, and um, uh, Julie Bennett, who plays in Olympia. Anyway, we've, we've worked with a number of other percussionists over the years. And they're they're all eclectic. And, it's just kind of, I think, Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to fit in with something that is narrower in scope. But if left to my own devices, I tend to bring in the kitchen sink. You know, like as a rhythm player, like as a piano player, I've played with various drummers. I love playing with drummers. Mm-hmm. I feel like they bring out different things of my playing that I forget to do or that I forget to know to do or that I don't know how to do. And then I try to follow along. Like I, mm-hmm. I just love that game of like listening to each other and trying to feel each other out because with every new person, there's a different groove lock that you get and the different way they play and um, how to different drummers like bring out different aspects of your playing when you're playing guitar um that's a good question i i tend to be the one doing the driving a lot of the time and then they uh-huh. fit in with me actually in in, in contra yeah. sutra but we have um russell of course is more of an african um yeah percussionist is background um and then you know ness is more coming from a like well, he was playing in a heavy metal band, as I recall, when we, as well as playing with um, uh, Gollum Afri and various other groups like Cloud Ten. He's got a number of bands he's playing in these days, you know, since. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mostly we, they've been versatile enough that we've been able to go a lot of the same places together. Yeah. And, um, you know, just a lot of it is just listening to each other in the moment. Yeah, and you and because you have an existing band, and also if you have a you know different fiddlers, it sounds like you and Marnie being like the consistent anchors of the band. And so, 
um, you kind of lay it down and the drummer is there to kind of play with what you've got. Right. Basically. Yeah. And, and I mean, we've really, as Contra Sutra, we've only had two fiddle players. We've mm-hmm. sometimes under different names. Um, I'm trying to remember. We did, we played some with Ben Schreiber. Oh yeah. Um, and we, that band had another name, Uncle Sutra. Oh, of course. <laughs> Uncle Farmer plus Contra Sutra exactly. equals Uncle Sutra. Yeah. And so, you know, Ryan McCasson was the fiddler. But, of course, he plays in this other band that's in fairly high demand. And it, I mean, he had other projects. Besides the Syncopaths, he had a lot of other projects, too. But yeah, so we weren't always able to get him for things. And he recommended yeah. Brandon, who they they both, you know, they both have a Scottish National Fiddle Championship from age 17. Brandon's a bit younger, but they played together a lot. But, you know, Brian was from the Tacoma area and Brandon was from Washington, but further north, Anacortes. And so, and they're both classically trained, so they both read music. And so it was pretty easy to go back and forth from one to the other. They have a Mm -hmm. lot of the same skill set. And so the band didn't change much in character with one or the other of them. Which helped as well. Although indeed, that's, you know, Marnie is the one who put that group together. And so Mm -hmm. she's kind of the um, primary shaper of the repertoire and so forth. Where does she pull repertoire from? Oh, all over. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Again, play a lot of my stuff. She's written some great, um, some great tunes, in particular is a waltz of hers, Violet, I think that everybody should play. Um. And, um, you know, we get things from the Portland collection. She, she hears things and goes, oh, I want to play that. Yeah. Um, I've brought things in. Uh, there are tunes of mine that only Contra Sutra plays because I feel like I need to control the backup part to make it work. Yeah. You know, there's not everything. There's just certain particular things. Like I, um, I had this idea of writing a tune... In, um, inspired by kirtan, by you know, sort of the yoga yogi chanting, mm-hmm. where, where they have like tabla and harmonium, and so I, um, I had this idea for like an ostinato, draw, long melody within a more sort of Irish, you know, fiddly sounding thing over it, and it just would be really hard to teach to a piano player and to you know coordinate it. Whereas having a percussionist, it was perfect. So that particular tune, I've pretty much have only played in that group. So someday, I mean, I have field recordings of it. and Maybe that'll be one of the things I'll send. I, I have one from Folklife yeah. in 2017 that was originally a video, but I pulled the audio. Um, but um, it's Contra Sutra has yet to release a CD and... Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're now Marnie's living in England now, so we, we are a little more geographically challenged than we used to be.
it's interesting, like thinking about tune writing, which we we can get to as a topic all of its own. But you know, there's sometimes, especially some modern contra tunes, they're great dan dance tunes, but they need a little support. It's like almost like you're writing the groove and the tune and the chords at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there's some tunes that need the phrasing of the accompaniment as a part of the tune, or else they don't work for dancing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think you know the tradition was you know, a fiddle player could be the music for all night and the rhythm right. was built in to, to all of those, those, you know, the, the tunes that were played back in the day. Right. But we've gotten accustomed to being in a band and having bands play them. And, you know, there's all these resources you can bring to bear in that situation, but it does mean the melody can be a lot less substantial. Yeah, sometimes you're dancing more to the groove or yeah. and to the chord progression than you are to the tune. The tune, you know, is the I don't know, I don't have a good analogy for it. The tune's also important, you know, but it's not it's not like a a reel which has mm-hmm. all the rhythm and all the phrasing that you need even an unaccompanied reel by itself. Yeah. You know? Yep. And I think that a lot of modern contra tunes, you know, tune writers have felt free to step aside from that mm-hmm. way of thinking where the real has to be the one thing you dance to. But like you say, you have to know, like there were tunes we did in Nor'easter and Buddy System too, where we're like, well, this tune, I wrote it, but it only works if I accompany it this way. <laughs> and I tried accompanying it that way and it did not work and everybody got confused, you know? Yeah. Yep. Like halftime tunes or, you know, bringing in tunes from other traditions like Breton tunes. Mm -hmm. Some of them, the phrasing can be confusing for dancers or they have half the notes. And so you have to work with the rhythm to support them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, tunes that have whole notes in them or something. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, I mean. But that's where a percussionist can be so fun because that space doesn't have to be taken up with like notes right like as a piano player i always wish i could mute notes the way that string players can and just do something percussive Mm -hmm. everything i play is a note whether i want it to be or not so sometimes i would play clusters of notes to make them sound less like a note and more like a crunchy sound yeah but like you know the nightingale flying tent where Keith Murphy is doing this like chicka 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 right. up high on the mandolin, yep. and I just always wanted to do something like that and never could. Yeah, yeah, the whole rhythmic strumming aspect. I mean, th- there are plenty of things piano can do that it's extremely difficult or impossible on guitar. But yeah, two hand independence, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's one of the fun things I've liked to do in recent years is occasionally play um, in the English country dance world, be the backup player for English country dance. And a lot of times I'll play classical guitar for that. Mm. And then I can do a bit of that melody and chords at the same time Mm -hmm. thing that is challenging with a pick. Mm -hmm. So they have, of course, have to be, the notes have to be within a certain range of each other. (laughs) Since, you know, my fingers can only go so far and up the neck at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
What are some of the craziest musical experiments? I mean, how can you like even remember all the things that you've done? I don't if someone asked me yeah. that, I'd be like, well, I don't know. But can you think of any like especially far out things that you've done that you've also considered successful? I mean, we all try things and then maybe don't repeat them. But yeah, what are some of your favorites? I, there was this story from that, that just reminds me of a story from Scott's Broom, who I like that was the first band I played with, and they told me this story where in a previous season of Contras, they they rehearsed every month. The set list didn't change much, but they would get together and rehearse two or three times. And they worked up this thing where they were going to have a Baran solo. You know, it's like they're going to play and then the Baran would play. And they did it. And they, you know, they got to the end of the, the, the tune, dropped out, the Baran went on, and all the dancers stopped and clapped. <laughs> Maybe the only time everyone's clapped for a bar on solo. Yeah. Well, I think they thought the tune was over. And they yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of crazy things that... Well, I can tell you just some of the concept tunes that I've done that still occasionally get done. There's, there's one... Um, I decided... I wrote something called the Bollywood Reel. <laughs> That it was after seeing, I don't know, Lagan and um, Bride and Prejudice. I can't remember a number of movies with Bollywood soundtracks. And I thought, I bet you could get that feel. And especially there's this kind of hip-hop kind of, um, hip-hop-y kind of swingy, real kind of, you know, kind of get, get that kind of feel in it. And so I, I, I wrote the, this tune that goes, let's see. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then it has actually four different, it's got an A, a B, a C, and a D. But it adds up to 32 bars. And when we first play it, we, we just, every time we played it, we would slow way down. <laughs> <laughs> and it took a while to get it up to kind of contradance speed because we played in a medley with something else and mm -hmm. and we'd be going along you know cooking along at 116 and then we go ooh, down to about 104 which you know the dancers at least subliminally noticed <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but that one actually we've done it successfully but the first few times it was pretty tricky and so there was that I'm trying to think if there was something like really, really crazy that didn't work. And I'm, I'm a little bit stumped at the moment. Um, yeah, I'll have to think more about that. Maybe as something, we're talking, yeah, something all your pops into my head. Will haunt you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, something will, something will pop out, I'm sure. Um, I mean, the string quartet thing was marginally. I'm not sure we repeated it. We might have done it, repeated it once. Yeah. Um, Sometimes those things are fun, and they're fun for the dancers as like a variety, but they don't necessarily reach peak danceability where right. you want to dance to them. Yeah, I mean, you know, often in the end, I mean, 
the dance really is primarily for the dancers. You know, the band should have fun because if the band is having fun, it's more fun for everybody. And it, it, you know, it generates on the other hand, having fun at the expense of the dance experience is not the best way to go about it. I think. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's good to remember (laughs) that, that, you know, they, like, if they don't know where they are, then, then, it doesn't, they're not going to be listening to the music. They're going to be trying to figure out what the hell the next, you know, the caller is trying to, are we at B1 right now? <laughs> Should they be? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like people are doing a forward and back, four beats apart. And... Yeah, the experimentation is only fun if the foundation is there of everyone dancing. Exactly. Because once it gives way to confusion, then A, that ruins the musical effect you're trying to create, and B, you know, kind of everyone's attention gets put back on trying to fix the dance and not on the moment you're all trying to have together. Exactly. But it's fun. Sometimes I feel like you can only find out where those boundaries are by occasionally going past them. And yeah. the secret is to just observe so that you know when you're going past them and can come back. I have seen bands who don't notice or don't seem to care when they've gone past those boundaries of what the dancers want to comfortably dance to or yeah. can dance to. and. Yeah, I remember learning, like, one thing from, it's not the only thing, but one thing I learned from Great Bear Trio, um, we were playing, I think it was one of the Arizona um, weekends, I think I was there with Contra Sutra, and I was dancing to them, and there was some point where it was just Andrew on guitar for, like, two Mm -hmm. or three times through, and I was thinking, yeah, you can do that as long as you make it, you know, he was making it clear when he was in one part of the tune and another part. I mean, he was just playing a groove, but it wasn't a tune where it was always the same chord all the way through. So there were harmonic gateposts, you know, landmarks that you could latch onto. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do something different in the A and the B or whatever, you create some kind of contrast that just doesn't happen to be the melody. And with experienced dancers, that all kind of subliminally clicks in with, you know, a kind of a sense of, oh, I do this for eight beats, and then I do this for four, and then this other thing for four, without actually counting. And so I I think there was some tune that I started doing where I've, I would just, with Contra Sutra, I would just say, okay, I'm going to start by myself. You guys come in at like the second time or third time or whenever you feel like it. And I would just set up this groove and the chords had enough movement in them so it was pretty clear where you were. And that was fun. It was a great thing to learn. You know, variety. Always good to have more tricks up your sleeve. Yeah. How do callers that you work with like those kinds of things? I think in general, um, we haven't had too much issue with that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I try to to me, like we are, you know, the caller is our customer kind of in a way. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that they are happy and getting what they need to do their job um, while providing interest for the dancers, you know, and excitement and propulsion. And um, so sometimes we've had to, you know, we give, um, 
um, you know, have to sort of give advance notice of doing something. Mm-hmm. So I do, re- I've, I've remembered one kind of train wreck that happened on, it was actually a set that we had done successfully before. You were talking about um, halftime tunes. Mm-hmm. And at some point I had this idea that I really wanted to write, you know, the the kind of smooth, dreamy dance where you play like dreamy jigs, you know, that's when you you kind of pull out, um, I don't know, something like the orphan or, um, and, you know, it's like a dance that may have like a mad Robin into a hay into, you know, and you do a lot of just, it's, it's very kind of a romantic contra dance. And I thought, I want to have something that's not a jig for that. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote kind of a bossa nova, Hmm. Um, and the melody, it is, that's one that really needs a backup because the, the melody is kind of, I was, I was sort of modeling after the Beatles tune and I love her, you know, as kind of the, which I think is maybe more a rumba, but anyway, but it's just in any e minor goes. It goes on like that. And we started a medley with that. Um, we were working with a, a caller. I think it was for a Seattle dance. And, you know, it, he had taught the dance. And, you know, we went boom, 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 and started doing this. And he went, wait, wait, where are we? What are we doing? <laughs> because it was, you know, he was expecting like a kind of more of a fiddle tune. <laughs> yeah. And um, I actually don't, typically don't do that as the first tune of a set anymore. There's another halftime tune I wrote called Waimea that we do in front of it. That's more like Child Grove as a demixolydian kind of, I don't know. Anyway, it has a very different feel from Child Grove, but it starts boom, 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 boom. so, So that one was a bit of a train wreck that time. And so we learned you have to kind of put it in the right place. A, a lot of medleys where we're doing something unusual, often the first tune will be more straightforward. It's like mm-hmm. while the dancers are getting the dance under their, you know, into their feet. Absolutely. It's, it's best to be clearer. And I mean, it's, it's sort of like that fundamental rule, you know, the, the either the more complex the dance or the more beginners, the simpler the music should be. Yeah. And as the dances become simpler and the dancers become more sophisticated, you can do more with melody and arrangement and have it be a good experience. I remember realizing that kind of a little to my chagrin when we started playing for like the advanced contra dances, Hmm. you know, like at least in Boston, you know, there's like a little extra hoop to jump through to get booked for those. They don't book just anybody for the advanced consciences. Uh, yeah. And so it's like, we're going to get to play all our cool show-offy tunes. All these really good dancers will be able to find the phrasing and these weirdo things we want to play. But it was the opposite because the dances were so complicated. You know, often the caller never drops out at times. Right. Like the, 
they're calling the whole time and our music actually had to be simpler than we would on a normal night and i don't mind that i'm happy to like our, my, my role is to serve right like right. we talked about and so but i had to change the hat from oh we're gonna unleash this crazy music on the dancers to oh we're gonna um right their brains are subservient their brains, their are, brains are busy yeah it's like if you see a lot of diagonal haze or something you're going yeah okay <laughs> yeah yeah I've, or something with like a high piece count and they're the timing is really important right. to get from one move to the next or the dance falls apart. Like if you've got a shadow on a corner that you're chaining to, and if your shadow's late, the whole thing falls apart. Right. It's like you're, so, you're going into an ocean wave and then there's this element and it's other element. And then, yeah. Yeah. Those. So all of a sudden we, we find ourselves playing like our sturdiest tunes and arrangements. That's right. It's time to bring in the French Canadian repertoire. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, I just got this idea. It would be fun to do an advanced dance, but the dancing is in advance. The music is advanced. Whatever that means, we don't. Why don't musicians throw an advanced contra sometimes? Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's our turn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I kind of think like the ultimate example of that is Dutch crossing. Mm. You know. For Dutch crossing, I mean, you are a metronome with phrases because yeah, and you just sit there most of the time and you don't even play well, for the first hour. Yeah, I mean, it is like <laughs> it's like the old Steve Martin routine about you know what's it like to be a musician for the quiz show? Name that tune, you know, da 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 da. To dream the impossible dream, you know, that's you don't get to play the rest of it. <laughs> right. Right. I also feel that about grid squares, you know, oh. also relying on us just to. Absolutely. Solid. Yeah, and kind of squares in general, really. I mean, not Quebecois ones, but, you know, like Southern squares. And you're, you really, it's not about the melody at all. I mean, you might need phrases, but you are there to provide a backdrop. Strong, solid propulsion. And that's fine. It's, it's, oh, I love doing grid squares as a dancer. So I'm happy to yeah. see people having that fun. Yeah, I love that moment on the floor when it all comes together and they magically get back to their spot or whatever, and everyone's like, "Woo!" Yeah, so great. <laughs> That's right. So great. Yeah, but I think it would be fun in an indulgent way, but perhaps the dancers would enjoy it to like pick some hard music to dance to, and the musicians tell the caller, "Now this one is going to have kind of a bossa nova groove, so we need you to call something with balances on the beat." Right. You know, kind of reverse the roles a little bit. I mean, occasionally callers will ask, "Well, what would you like right now?" And say, "Well, we yeah. do have this set we'd like to do." So, yeah. for instance, the first kind of Afro Caribbean tune I wrote is a tune called "Tropaganda" with a T. So it's oh like, my goodness. like tropical propaganda. Anyway, it's slightly a KGB spin, I suppose, on that name. And um, actually, Avant, um, Avant Gardner's record, well, the Sun Laura Light's solo CD, I think. Um, mm -hmm. But I haven't recorded it with any group. group. But it's it's got this thing in the B2. It, it kind of is this. And. It's an A, B, C, D kind of like, um, oh, I don't know, that chorus jigs A, B, C, B. But anyway, it's got different eight-bar parts. And the last eight bars bar starts with this da-dum-bum-bump. Bum, and it's great having like a forward and back there or a balance or something. So we'll see. Well, we've got this set that we, you know, that if it's got something in the B2, that's, that would be ideal. Mm -hmm. So some kind of punctuation. 
So occasionally that happened. Yeah. We were talking about those like modern tunes where you need the groove under it to support the tune. There are also modern tunes where you need the right dance for them to work, you know. And I know we've had tunes where like if there's petronella balances in the A, then the dancers have this inherent rhythm in their bodies and they can keep it going, maybe over the syncopated A part or something. But if you try to put a hay there, it just totally falls flat, you know, and everyone right. ends up confused. Yeah. And it's like that. That is a way that modern tunes sometimes differ from from a lot of traditional music, where I, I think I remember hearing on a, another Contrapulse podcast, you know, the notion you can take any tune and make it like if you're playing particularly mm-hmm. traditional music you can take any tune and play it, make it work for the dance that's in front of you. And uh, I remember early on playing um, with uh, Larry Andrus, who's, you know, one of the longstanding contra dance figures along with, say, with Sandy Bradley and some of the other Northwest early um, people who formed the contra dance scene here in Seattle. And, you know, Penfix was another one in Spokane. But I played with Laurie and he's going, you can, you know, I was talking about, we should think about, do we have like good tunes for balances and for, you know, this and that. He's going, you can play any tune for any dance. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's right. Really? It's true. It's just more effort, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as a rhythm player, you can massage most grooves under tunes to fit any dance. Yeah, and even as a, like, yeah. But as a fiddle player or melody player too, you can sort of shorten, you know, you can kind of, make things more lyrical or more choppy if need be in some spot. Yeah. Add notes, take out notes. Exactly. Yeah.
interesting to me that, you know, all of us are starting from this tradition where the tune is just the workhorse for the dance and they, you don't try too hard. You just dance course jig, you have a good time. And the concept of any tune to any dance, and we're just kind of pushing that to our, its limits in all sorts of ways. Yeah, you know? that's true. You just end up having a longer set list, I guess. <laughs> right? I mean, it's true. Like, yeah, I remember Nor'easter, and we're not nearly, like, we were We were eight years as a band. That's not even half the longevity of a band like KGB. Yeah, and, I was just thinking, how we're old enough to drink now, you know, let's see. Because we started in 93, so yeah, that's um, closing in on 30, I guess 28 years now. Yeah. So think about all the repertoire that you have piled up after all that time together. Yeah, I've got it. I actually have our set list sitting here. I was thinking for ideas, Um, which I'm the keeper of the set list. Mm -hmm. Julie, actually, both Bag of well, I'm not sure Contra Sutra has this, but Bag of Tricks and KGB both have a secretary. And it's somebody who uh-huh. writes down like everything we played, every dance we've ever done. And Julie has these notebooks going back to, you know, the nineties. And wow. yeah, it's actually kind of, I've borrowed them on occasion just to see, you know, what we actually did. Cause you know, some things get onto the set list and I mean, we've got, oh, I don't know. I'd say we've got maybe around 40 or 50 medleys on here, plus a bunch of individual tunes at the bottom that can be cobbled into medleys or substituted. And just and we know a lot more than what's on. This is that 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. Like, mm-hmm. um, it has all the reels and marches on one side and then jigs on, and jig-to-reel stuff on the other side. And, yeah, there's probably 70 or 80 medleys altogether. Um, but there's some we've hardly ever played and there's others we play a lot. And, yeah. And so sometimes it's interesting to go back and look at what we've done. Yeah. I remember the first time Nor'easter played for a, a five day, six day music camp, like a week long event where we were playing like three to five hours a day. Yeah. Some days. Yep. And I was like, I want to go through the whole week and not repeat anything. You know? Absolutely. It's a point of pride. Exactly. Yeah. And I we mean, could do it. We're like, oh, we actually saved some of our, you know, you always save your favorite sets for like the last of the night or the last dance or something. Oh, yeah, sure. We saved too many things. Oh, no. And the week ended and we hadn't played some of our favorite sets because we were like saving them because we assumed we would run out. <laughs> it's, it's Sunday afternoon and we've got 12 things we want to do. Exactly. Uh, caller, can we... Decide your program for you so that we can fit all these in, please. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, that's a, a pacing. Pacing is always tricky. <laughs> yeah. But it, it takes a while with a new band, you know, like yeah. these dan- bands that are out there playing dance weekends. It takes a while to accumulate that kind of repertoire. And I remember when Noah and I did the same event as a new duo, even though he and I had both been playing Contras for a while, And with each other for like two or three years, we Mm -hmm. still didn't have enough repertoire to get us through a week. And so I'm like, Noah, write a tune, quick, go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, being in a duo, it's a little easier to make up things on the fly. And it doesn't always end well, you know. But But, um, yeah, but often does. Yeah, serendipity. Sometimes you need to be forced to it's like you talk about like giving yourself self commissions of like, oh, we need this kind of tune for this kind of situation. And Oh, absolutely. You know, 
like being put in this whole variety of situations with a variety of choreography and stuff is part of the thing that, um, you know, nudges musicians to create more and more kinds of tunes for different mm -hmm. situations. And so it adds to the diversity that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is, it is good to kind of look at a list and scrutinize it and say, well, okay, what do we, what do we run out of? Like I mentioned the balances in the B part kind of tunes and, um, but also, you know, different kinds of moods of tunes too, I think like, especially one of the, I don't know if, would you say this is a trend? It seems like there are more smooth dances than there used to be. Probably, yeah. You know, with the, with the adoption of, for instance, the Mad Robin figure and, and th there are some more, and also the hay becoming more and more popular as a part of dances. And even jigs being perceived as things that were smooth when I feel like they used to be perceived as things that were bouncy. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's pretty hard to play the St. Lawrence jig as a smooth jig, for instance. <laughs> but there's definitely, and and there is a, you know, dang it, there is a place for bouncy jigs, I think. And and the, the way I think you, you can make bouncy jigs cool is to emulate English Cayley bands. Yeah. You know, a, a, a group like, oh, I don't know, there's, who's come over here? Um I went over and played for the Chippenham Festival. I guess I've done it three times with um, various groups. And we always would go check out the English Cayley bands because they they all kind of sound like, well, some of them sound like Blosabella, you know, if you remember them, the just amazing British. Oh, I love Blosabella. Yeah, European influence group with Hurdy Gurdy and, and um, so on. But... Some of them sound like that, and something they they always either had like a slap bass player or a drummer, and mm -hmm. and they were more centered around melodian than around fiddle, but they would just play this great modal music, and but also you know play like things that were really bouncy jigs, but they would make them sound more like um I don't know like like a blues shuffle kind of thing. Just mm -hmm. dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum, and I think that's just a great feel for contra dance. It's not mm -hmm. you know da 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 dum ba dum. There's a place for both of those things, and it's nice to have that those moods available. Mm -hmm. So that's my brief soapbox about bouncy jigs. <laughs> <laughs> I love bouncy jigs. And the only reason why I didn't emphatically scream about bouncy jigs is because I'm trying to not interrupt you as the interviewer, but I love <laughs> bouncy jigs. And uh, yeah. I feel like we just have to embrace their dorkiness and they're fun to dance to. You Absolutely. Know, I feel like they're not cool. They're not cool these days, but it is so fun to dance to. And there are a lot of dance moves that I feel like are almost better to a bouncy jig than to a reel. Mm -hmm. Like, even like Petronella balances or wavy lines or sure, down the hall. There's all these great moves that are just so fun. Rory O'More. Rory O'More is right? a bouncy jig. Mean, case in point. Yeah, absolutely. Literally. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. And and um, I was going to say something based on what you said, and it's gone somewhere. I don't see it up on the ceiling. I don't know. Um, yeah, so and I've written a few bouncy jigs. I remember writing, giving myself the challenge of writing a B flat jig because there aren't very many of them. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It ended up, I called it the boathouse, which was actually named for, it's a place you could stay at this lovely, um, it's not really a retreat, but it's it's up on um, Vancouver Island called um, Yellow Point Lodge. And Mary and I went up there two or three times. And one time we stayed at a place called the boathouse because it used to be the boathouse there. And it just sounded like a good name for a jig. So it's the the cadence at the end of the B part is such that Claude would usually sing Barnacle Bill the Sailor because that, that was how the, the rhythm went. And it was like the dorkiest of dorky jigs, but we, we've played it off and on over the years. But also there's yeah, so many you, good ones already, like, you know, Broken Lantern or whatever. There's, there's some great bouncy jigs out there. You're kind of reminding me. I was on a quest for bouncy jigs for a while. It's a fun role for me. Like in most of my other bands, I've been in bands with great fiddlers and other melody players who love to collect tunes and already know tunes. Mm -hmm. But then I was in Buddy System. Now, that doesn't mean that Noah's not a great fiddler, but Noah doesn't collect tunes in the same way. He doesn't have a... he he's secretly a pop musician, I think, in a fiddler's <laughs> body. But his it's brain part of his secret to success, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But so, but I love collecting tunes, and I never got to have that role as much. And so, mm-hmm. I just loved like finding most of the repertoire for Buddy System and just looking everywhere. And I was really inspired by like things from the UK and Kaylee bands and the jigs that they choose. And I remember we we played this jig from the Isle of Man that was just super cool because it was bouncy, but in like a cool modern way as opposed oh, nice. to like a little, as opposed to like a little burnt potato kind of dorky way, uh-huh. you know, and like, I don't know, something you can really dig your teeth into, kind of minor and driving is fun. Yeah. Jigs, jigs, the unexplored frontier. Let's go back to jigs some more. They're so great. Absolutely. There's, um, I don't know, are you, have you listened to much Galician or Asturian yeah, music? Yeah. yeah. I think of the Munieres there, although they often are the, they often have these extended pickups that make them a little harder to figure out the phrasing, you know, where one is, where the one really starts at the beginning. But, um, I've, I haven't actually, I'm trying to think, I'm in this group, Roguery. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, all my side projects. So KGB has actually become as much a couple dance band as a contra dance band over the years. We play for a lot of just like mostly waltz couple dances. Now, yeah, in fact, you we have did a waltz CD. Yeah, we did an in person one actually in September outside at a um, squared in downtown Seattle. But and we've added, you know, we Claude and I play a lot of swings, so we do swing dance, and and I've actually took Bordine's the the Polovetsian dance that his and turned it into a rumba and we do that along with but and then we play tango and you know so we kind of have the whole we have foxtrots and so we play the spectrum of ballroom dance but i'm also in this group called vals cafe orchestra that does these we've got a guy who is an honest to god orchestrator in the group um who plays accordion and piano he actually has a degree in orchestration focusing on polka mm. From wow. the, the Cornish Institute of the Arts, and it's a guy named Toby Hansen. So we play Strauss waltzes, and also a lot of you know music of the kind of the big band era. And anyway, I got a, all these other projects, but Roguery is one that was a, it was a band that was put together by Brick Friendly and Chris Sackett to record companion CDs for their books of English dance. 
mm-hmm. and they have this wonderfully eclectic taste in the music they choose for their dances. And it's mm-hmm. the the group consists of Anita Anderson and me from Seattle, and then Shira Hammond and Jim Oakton from the Bay Area. And we've recorded seven CDs together now, but we also are on occasion are a contra dance band, and. I'm guess I think we've done the a muñera because you know Jim will have all his instruments along, so he'll mm-hmm. he'll pull his gaita out and we'll do it in a medley with you know some other jigs. So, yeah, it's fun to bring in tunes. I I remember um, grabbing a couple. There was a band from Asturias, um, Tejador, I think was the name of the group, and I grabbed a couple of tunes off one of their CDs um, that were. Pipe tunes, gaita tunes. I'm not sure they didn't work that well for dancing, but it sure was fun transcribing them and trying it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember like playing for English dances, and sometimes the you know the dance leader will give you a nod in Barnes tune, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, this is going to be something fun if it's from from this. Yeah. Yeah, so many you know, of them are. One yeah. of Brooke and Chris's dances, there's some quirky tunes, some really fun modal things, and lots of interesting things. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, a few of the things that they've used of mine, some of them were written as originally for contra dance, like Cottonwood is one that's been, the dance has gotten around quite a bit. But I actually wrote it, and it was we were going to record a medley of, um, oh, the, the, have you ever played the Banshee's Wail over the Bangle Pit? It's a great tune name. I, G minor jig, traditional. I don't know. It doesn't ring a yeah. bell, but that doesn't mean I haven't played it, I guess. Yeah, we, we had a set of that, and then we did Sean Ryan's jig in A minor after uh-huh. it. And then we go into a tune of mine called In From the Cold, which is this very dreamy, a very positive, uplifting A minor, I mean, a, sorry, a major um, jig. And I just thought, so many people have recorded Sean Ryan's. I'll just write a tune to substitute for that just another A minor jig and it ended up being cottonwood that's got a little bit of a it was like I was thinking about that kind of Irish jig that almost sounds like it was a blues tune. Uh-huh. Where you can do like a sharped fourth, you know, or I say flatted fifth kind of thing, the blue note a little bit. And that was where it came from. Yeah, it's from. been a while since I've played an English dance because none of us are doing anything these days. But I remember, if I remember Cottonwood right, I remember having this like quirky moment in it where you're like, ooh, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I, I wrote in a little E-flat as an yeah. ornament in one spot, just as a hint, like what you could do elsewhere. Yeah, people say- I think I remember- People say it's a hard tune. I guess it, I wrote it on mandolin, so it's probably harder on, on fiddle. I mean, actually, I never write anything on an instrument, ever. But then I play it to check it on an instrument. And uh-huh. I had mandolin in mind, so, yeah. Yeah, I would know I'm a piano player. Everything's a little weird and easy and hard all at the same time on the piano. <laughs> That's right. It's the, the challenges are different. <laughs> but I remember the the process is, you know, you see the tune for the first time for the dance, and you, you're kind of sight-reading through, and then you come across a weird moment, and I'm like, who wrote this? <laughs> Dave Bartley. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> now I know where this came from. It all makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, especially st- stuff for them often. I'll, I'll, I don't know. I, I do occasionally write normal tunes, but you know, there's so many of them out there. Like the normal tunes I write are kind of lost in the noise. It's really, or in the grass, whatever. It's more the ones that have some unique element that will stand out. I think. Mm-hmm. So. 
I mean, maybe that's one of the hardest things to write is a really good normal tune that just has legs and is just one of those great tunes, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, they're I think, hard to write. Yeah. I mean, there are people, you know, Larry Unger, I think, has done that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Keith Murphy. I mean, there are mm-hmm. definitely writers who have, have been very adept at doing that and have uh, actually Anita Anderson with Bus Stop. Mm-hmm. You know, she's. Here's these stories of oh well, I heard bus stop played on the Paris Metro by buskers you know it's it's really got because it's it's just it totally works and but it is a you know a pretty traditional sounding tune so I mean I've written some like that they just mostly aren't they haven't you know made the it, it's hard as a tune writer as you know you put them yeah. out there and hopefully they get legs but. So many people are writing great tunes. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about your tune writing process. It sounds like you pull inspiration from a lot of different places. Yeah, and they. So, for me, well, one thing I've I used to occasionally when Larry and I were at um, at a dance camp together, we would sometimes co-write or sorry, co-lead a tune writing workshop. And part of that was just talking about our process because we are so completely different. Mm. Now, mind you, his obviously is more effective because he's written over 5,000 tunes and I haven't hit 400 yet in terms of quantity. And also, you know, he's written a lot of great tunes that have gotten out there. Obviously, I've played a lot of them. I really like a lot of them. Um, a tiny percentage of what he's written, but still a lot. But, you know, he writes with, at an instrument. He'll say, you mm-hmm. know, Door County 2, I wrote that on the banjo. Or um, I, you know, wrote It's Too Hot on the piano at Pinewoods on a hot night. And mostly to me, I'm like taking a walk or, you know, I used to, or just writing or driving in a car or just some moment something will occur to me or, or or I'll just kind of sit there with, if I have like a, a self commission or commission, but I don't tend to pick up an instrument and play things. I tend to run them through my hmm. head and often, you know, the harmonic structure is there sometimes and sometimes it isn't, it's just the melody. And especially early on, I would try to put every possible chord you could play. <laughs> that was really silly. You know, I'd say, oh, you could play a G or an E minor or, the, or a C in this spot. Mm-hmm. When really it's better, I think, just to have one chord thread. And then, you know, most accompanists will start substituting things that sound good to them. Um, so I'll do that. And the genesis, sometimes it's I just have a melody in my head. And mm-hmm. sometimes it happens really quickly. Um I remember doing a hike with a friend um, who had just been at Fiddle Tunes, and she said, you know, and I was in the Quebecois band lab, and suddenly this idea for a tune came into my head, hmm. which I admit has, it, I had a name that I'd written down a while before that I really want to use this, and that's La Poutine Suriant. <laughs> um so that's the name for it. But it, it's basically, it's a bit like the telephone tune in the sense that the A part is in kind of a mixolydian, mm-hmm. like a mixolydian, and then it 
goes to D, except in my case, it actually starts, the B part starts on a B minor, and then, so it's slightly different that way, and of course the melody's different. But it's the same idea, where there's this tension building in the A part, resolving in the B. But yeah, that wrote itself in five minutes. It was just like, and other times, you know, you labor over them for days and days, and go, God, this still isn't, yeah, anyway. Um, and you'd labor over them in your head? Like, how do you remember them? Can your brain hold on to them and no. play around with them? I, when I was first writing tunes, that was a test. If I could remember them, then they were memorable enough to be, you know. But no, I often write down, and I learned the ABC notation, the computer, mm-hmm. you know, sort of um, letter and symbol and number notation, because I never have staff paper with me. And the drawing five parallel lines is just, by the time I've done that, I've forgotten what I was going to write. Um, so I'll write it down in ABC if I have like pencil and paper. I've tried the dictating thing, but you know, either like I'm driving and it's just not practical. Or I remember trying to do it on a hike one time. I had this great idea. I was going up this hill and I thought, I'm just going to use voice memo on my phone and record it. And so I stopped, and I was going, you know, it goes, <laughs> I was too out of breath, dude. So that really didn't work. So I, I've sort of given up on the dictaphone concept. But um, so I usually will just note down, like, just enough of it so I'll remember. Because sometimes I'll have, like, here's an A part, or, like, here's the, you know, here's, like, the first three or four bars, and then the next three or four bars will be similar, but they'll resolve. And then the B part will go to start in this other chord, and I'll figure out what it is later. So sometimes it's just the seed of a tune at that moment. And then mm-hmm. I'll sit down later and start filling out the rest. Um, Do you keep a pile of random half-finished ideas lying around? Yeah, I, I have. And every once in a while I'll go back, but I don't tend to revisit them all that often. Um, a lot of tunes I've written have come out of I mean, there have been some that were auction tunes. Uh huh. Um, where, like with Brick and Chris, we would auction off a dance and tune to the highest bidder at the fundraising auction, say at um, BACDS English Week, heydays. Or, you know, I've also had, you know, waltzes commissioned or whatever. And then we sit, you know, sit down with whoever it is and get some constraints. Like, what kind of a thing would you like for this, you know? Do you want it to be major, minor, you know, like six, eight? Because constraints are good for the creativity process often. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'll have a self-commission. Um, like, for instance, I mentioned um, Cottonwood was a self-commission to write an A minor jig that would work in a certain place. Mm-hmm. And um, otherwise, sometimes it's a genre, like one of my... Last, it's been a number of years now, but one of my most recent bring in a completely different genre into contradance. I thought, you know, the cha cha is a great rhythm for contradance. And rather than adapt, you know, um, some of the classic ones, I wrote three contra cha chas. And it was actually, <laughs> I, I wrote them, most of them at the time I was, I've, most of my career, I was living in Seattle and working in a at a company about um, twenty miles away, and I was in a van pool. And for a fair period, I would actually bike 
to meet the van. It'd be like a 10 minute bike ride in the morning. And then I would ride back from a different place. It was somewhat longer. And I remember I wrote some of the cha-chas while biking to meet the van. And then I put it, the bike on a bike rack and take it to work. And it was just this time when I just had 10 minutes of where I, you know, I had to watch for traffic, but otherwise I could just have in my head some concept. And so we have this medley of three cha-chas that I do occasionally, particularly in Contra Sutra, because again, it's to get that cha-cha feel. It's without, with percussion really helps. Ideally cowbell, you know. Yeah, your bike commute cha-cha series. Yeah, and they, of course, all have silly names. I think my favorite is Evil Haze. <laughs> anyway. So it sounds like for you, tunes kind of finish themselves, like, Sometimes. when you write them. And I go through long fellow periods, too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some, I think the most I've written in a year is probably 40 you know, so I've written almost 400 tunes, but I started in 1989, so it's mm-hmm. been stretched over a lot of years. And mm-hmm. I've literally only written one tune this year, and it was actually a, um, a it's called Remembering David. It was a memorial for David Keener. And it's a pretty straight ahead G reel, actually. It's, it's, yeah. um, I put it up on Facebook, actually, with a, a recording at the time, which I could probably scare up. Um, so I'm in a fallow period right now. It's not like I don't have time. I've got time, but somehow the muse comes and goes. Um, what was the, what was the question? <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. We're just talking about tune writing. <laughs> yeah. What is the question? <laughs> you know, so the, yeah, the genesis comes from various places. Um, and I do actually, as much as keeping a list of tune ideas, I do keep a list of tune names, although the problem is a lot of them, you know, somebody will say, oh, what was it? There was some, there was something today, and I can't remember what the phrase now was now that wrote down, but somebody will say something and go, that would be a great tune name. Yeah. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's, you would have had to be there. It's going to require so much right. explanation that... You know, and sometimes I've used those, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but a lot like the dancers of teeth. That was another one. Actually, giant robot dance played that one. Um, and it had to do with an early auto translator. I, I took a, a paragraph about KGB and fed it in and out of each of the languages of, of um, what was called Babelfish. It was a very early auto translation uh-huh. program. And then I, I would translate it into, say, Portuguese, then back to English. And then I would take the result direct, directly and translate it into French and then back out and then into Spanish. And back. And by the time we got to the end, it was unintelligible. It was just nonsense. And I got three tune names out of that. And the Dancers of Teeth was one of them. Along That's with, great. Yeah. I- uh, Jimmy Fallon should give you some money because he's got this bit on his late night show now where they take a you know well-known pop or rock song, uh-huh. translate it through Google Translate, translate it back to English, and then sing the new words to the pop song. Oh, yeah. And it's funny, but like you were doing this way before. I was doing that back in the day. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. We did it by banging rocks together in Morse code. <laughs> 
<laughs> While fighting off woolly mammoths. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. There's, it's, well, Where did Ring of Kohala come from? Oh, yeah, right. That's so. Oh, that's kind of a fun. Th- I'll tell the whole dreary story if we have time. It's actually not that long. But um, KGB played, uh, there's a dance camp in Montana called Bear Hug that I did like four or five times. <clears throat> and one of the times I played there with KGB, the other band was the Avant Gardeners. And mm-hmm. that particular incarnation was Laura Light, George Paul, and Dave Weisler was there as the mm. third, which was great. And they were traveling with Nils Fredland as the mm-hmm. caller. And he was a pretty new caller then. I mean, this was way pre-Elixir, I think. Um. And then they were coming to Seattle to do this, the Thursday night Seattle dance. And so they ended up staying with us and they stayed with us for about a week. And one of my memories from that is we had, this is Spinal Tap, the movie on DVD. And it turned out that Nils had never seen it. And so I said, oh, you've got to see it. So we were present at Nils seeing this is Spinal Tap for the first time. But we also jammed together. And I think I'd just written Ring of Kohala. And so I guess Nils took it back to Elixir. Mm-hmm. And the only thing about it, and I love their version, um, and I had to tell them there's actually two different A parts that alternate, and they just used the first A part, which is fine. And KGB actually had recorded it with both A parts, which the, the other one's kind of in a minor key, and it's very it's very in contrast. But then, then you go back to the B, which is kind of like the chorus of a pop song. Mm-hmm. Um and in fact, um, somebody locally said, it's a lot like, is she really going out with him? But that's not <laughs> what I was thinking of. Um, so yeah, I, I wrote it kind of, I wanted to write something that was like a pop tune for Contradance with having a B, you know, a chorus, a really like memorable line B chorus. And the A part was just kind of setting it up. Um. And I must have written it after I played for a dance week in Hawaii on the the Big Island with KGB. And we spent some extra days. And there's a, then at the north end of the island, there's what's called the Kohala Peninsula. That's Mm -hmm. anyway, quite a lovely place. We drove around the island as part of, and stayed a few nights in various places after the, the dance camp was over. And I was thinking of the um, the Kerry Peninsula. Um, it's not the name of it, but it's called the Ring of Kerry on the west coast of Ireland. Hmm. And I just put the two together, the Kohala Peninsula with the road and the Ring of Kerry with the road and said Ring of Kohala. So that's where the name came from. Huh. And that was one of those just in the moment my brain popped into my brain as a name for it. Mm-hmm. I have no further explanation to that. But yeah, I, I love playing that, that because that B part is really nice for like a balance. You know, it's one of those where the, the A kind of leads up to the B. And I actually, in addition, because it was a pop tune, I wrote a middle eight for it. You know, it's a, I guess sometimes it's called a bridge or whatever, but a lot of pop tunes will yeah. have verse and chorus and then they have this other thing. 
Yeah, like a pre-chorus or a bridge or something right. else. Yeah. And so it has another 16 bar that we literally play the last time, just like you might do oh. if you were playing a set. And then finishes out on the, the chorus again. So that was that was how the Ring of Kahala came about. Um, yeah. I do have a pretty ordinary waltz in Waltz Book 4. I think of <laughs> Congratulations. It yeah. It's um <laughs> called Alpenglow. And that's hmm. and that was that was written we up in Alaska, actually at Denali. And mm. the thing about Denali in the summer is the mountain itself is in the clouds most of the time in the summer mm-hmm. in particular. The best time to see it is late spring, I think, or early fall. And people go there and they'll spend days at the park and never see it. And we um, I played at the Fairbanks, um, the Dance Camp North, the Fairbanks Group's yeah. week, weekend. And afterwards, we borrowed some camping equipment from friends who were living there. And I don't know how we got to the park. We took the bus back, I remember, because we had, had to stop for moose, you know, crossing. Um, but we went in and camped at Wonder Lake um, for like three nights. And I remember the first day, it was just torrential rain all day and it was cloudy. And then the next morning... The clouds lifted, and our camera broke. Mm. And we had this amazing, clear, hours-long sunset watching from the campground. And we couldn't take any, you know, everybody else had their tripods out. And they were, and so Mary wrote, and I wrote a tune, and it was Alpenglow.
Maybe you had the better experience instead of trying to capture it in the camera. You could just enjoy it. Well, it's true. It's it's easy enough to find photos online of the, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of photos of Denali. Say, oh, yeah, I took that. <laughs> I feel like the first time I went to Alaska, I took like 5,000 photos. Oh, you know? yeah. Where, where'd you go? Uh, the first time I went, I was actually, I used to do environmental education trips and I was leading a naturalist. They sent me along as their field naturalist. And I was like, I've never been to Alaska before, which is, uh, there are a lot of like birders who do this where you just study and you memorize the field guides to a place and then you go. And so I was like, guys, I'm not an expert in the local flora and fauna. I've actually never been here before, but as an ecologist, I can try to help you understand how some of these ecosystems work. And, Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that, so we went to things that were off the beaten path, like Wrangell St. Elias National Park and stuff. But then the other times I was there, I was really grateful to get to see some of the dance community in various parts of Alaska, you know, like you did, mm-hmm. like in Fairbanks and Anchorage. And they're just, it's just lovely. They're just wonderful people. And oh, the yeah. dance community is. There are so many really great communities just to- being in this, that's one of the wonderful things about being in this world, the contradance world. Mm-hmm. You know, you go all over, even outside the country, you know, to England and Australia. And I know that there's communities in France and Denmark, and mm-hmm. um, but also just throughout the U.S. Um, just wonderful people everywhere, you know. Just had so many great experiences staying with people and, you know, at dance camps and... Absolutely. I remember in Fairbanks, I just felt like it's one of those places where some people like really need the contra dance, you know, and there was this guy who's like, yeah, I've been in the bush all week. He lives off grid by himself in a cabin. And he all week had been like using his sled dogs to cut lumber and drag it back to his cabin. Mm -hmm. And then he was saying he goes to the contra dance and that's like the only time he sees people. Wow. (laughs) You know, and I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, this is the socializing experience here. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I don't want to I don't want to generalize. It's not like that for everyone who lives in Alaska, you know. Right. I don't want to make a stereotype of like they all live out in the woods and never see other people, but it, I don't know. I feel like it happens with other kind of rural or small town dances where it just feels like a community. You know, you yeah. all know each other. You put tables on the side of the dance so that there's room for kids to play. Mm-hmm. And it's not only about the dancing. It's about the whole thing of like coming together yeah. and seeing people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a social event. and Yeah. Um, you know, I remember a lot of, this isn't done as much now, but dances have, you know, potlucks, they would often have potlucks beforehand. Um, I remember the Olympia dance did that, Tacoma dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, not everybody went, but enough people kind of you started with that and you visited and then you all went off to dance afterwards. Or mm-hmm. Sometimes in my case to go play, you know, but right. yeah. Yeah, that's a nice feeling. Absolutely. So I'd like to... I would like to ask you a question that I'm trying to figure out how to phrase it so we can attack it from several different directions. But the thing I'm curious about is as someone who plays so many different kinds of music and has so many different eclectic bands and has tried so many different things for contra dancing, what do you think of as your like core identity as a contra dance musician? Hmm. I think a lot of it is 
the dreaded word eclectic. I mean, I think yeah. it is about flexibility. You know, I mean, I'm willing to play a night of, or play, you know, straight ahead old time or Quebecois or new, you know, New England concentrated tunes. Or I'm actually now playing in a Scottish Irish traditional group called Keltoy. They do a lot of songs, but also play, you know, like some Cape Breton and Shetland medleys and that kind of thing. I'm playing Citern in that group. That's sort of my third instrument after mandolin and guitar. Um, mm-hmm. Ten string octave mandolin is the long name. And um, so I think I'm sort of a chameleon in some ways um, that I'm often not the person who formed the group. I think KGB is kind of the closest to that in some ways. But I can just bring in, you know, what sort of an element that's needed or maybe an element that kind of broadens the the group in some way. Mm -hmm. So I think some of my, certainly my playing is, is informed by the fact that I started as a drummer. Mm-hmm. So I think rhythmically as much as I think melodically or harmonically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have that like rhythmic vocabulary from playing different kinds of grooves and understanding how they work. Yeah. And, and I tend to play with kind of an authority that comes, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's, you can kind of play a melody or you can play the melody or, or you know, play the rhythm and, I think that translates out to the dance floor. Mm-hmm. So I guess that, you know, I, I might be thought of as a bit iconoclastic just because I do tend to like, as a dancer, I would think about, with you know, this is a different thing that I haven't heard, but I think it would work for dance. I can imagine mm-hmm. dancing to this and... And so I just said, why not? Just bring it in, try it out. Let's, you know, all pretty much every genre of music we know now came from the combinations of other genre that hadn't been tried together before. And a lot of times it was an organic process because people emigrated from somewhere and these other people emigrated from somewhere else and they were in the same place and their music kind of combined. But we now have the opportunity to hear anything from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches while still, I mean, I think one of the beauties of Contradance is it's a living tradition mm-hmm. and it's, I wouldn't want to lose where it came from, but I also wouldn't want to go back to just where it came from, mm-hmm. I think, um, because you can have a you know a wonderful experience of doing a night of you know going from French forward to you know doing a um, a traditional circle mixer and then um, you know Petronella and and but it's nice to have all this other richness that we have in this world brought in as long as it still makes for uh you know an enjoyable and exciting contra dance mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think that's kind of where I've come from. <clears throat> I've been in these various groups that I've also toured with other people. Um, and there are some other projects kind of like I've when Rodney Miller was living here, I started playing with him more. And he mm-hmm. and Anita and I have a group called Spin that occasionally plays. We're, of course, geographically challenged too because Rodney's in Sonoma yeah. now. But um, we actually have a gig theoretically in the books for the Lady of the Lake June week next year. So fingers crossed for uh, more in-person things coming off. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And that would be June of 2022. So. So when you're like doing your Contra thing and, you know, being in bands and playing tunes and writing tunes, do you think about whether or not it's traditional or do you worry about that? Is that something that crosses your mind? Like, do you ever wonder, like, should I be more traditional? I'm not trying to say that you should. This is not a leading question. Oh, yeah. I'm just trying to explore what this modern tradition is these days. Yeah. I kind of want to remember where we came from. I hope mm-hmm. that we always, I would, if I had my druthers, um, contra dances would be more like they were when I first started, where there would be a mixer and maybe a square or two, and there was more diversity of configuration. I think that the modern urban contra, you know, that the dances are fun, but it's it's like it's like the music's gotten more diverse, but the dances, in a way, have gotten less diverse. I mean, there are some new figures, but the formations, you know, nobody does triple minors or triplets or, I mean, not very like David Millstone does. I mean, there are people who do, and you know, bless them. I'm glad that we still those things are still being done. But they've kind of evaporated out of the repertoire so many places. Yeah, a lot yeah. of the dancers aren't interested in them for yeah. whatever reason. You know, we're the, or at least enough who are vocal. There might be a lot who are, uh-huh. you know, and don't yeah. say anything. And so, but devil's advocate. Sure. Um, what about say you're like a hotshot new band who has worked on all your repertoire and cool tunes and cool arrangements. And then the caller is calling a circle mixer and then a triplet, and you can't play any of your cool sets. How do you <laughs> right. feel about that? <laughs> well, it depends. Yeah, it's yeah. There, that is true. And then I think then there should be some contra dances as well. Yeah, you know, it just doesn't have to be that all night. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I love just to be clear. I love circle mixers and. And yeah. those kind of things. And I, I love being in that musical mode where, again, you're just going back into the mode of supporting the dance and you're not trying to wow anybody. Or, right. It's just you're supposed to be fun. You're supposed to be festive. You're supposed to just play music that makes people come together as a community and have fun, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and of course, it's like if you're hired as the band to play for, a, say, a wedding reception, mm-hmm. one that isn't all contra dancers. And, you know, they, they want a contra dance in quotes. But, in fact, teaching progression and switching at the top and all that, it's difficult. So yeah. the contra dance is like, more likely to be a circle mixer and a, and a square, maybe Virginia Reel. And, and, yeah. And it's not about you as the musician. So, you know, for that evening, that's when you pull out the straightforward 
traditional. Well, they don't have to be traditional as long as they are straightforward with clear phrases. And maybe that's what traditional is these days. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, a tune like President Garfield's Hornpipe might not exactly fit that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but, um, but yeah, that may be at least the perception anyway. And certainly a lot of the tunes that have, because I'm sure there there's hundreds, thousands of tunes that were written back then that didn't make the cut, and so we don't remember them. Um, so the ones that have come to us are the, the strongest, and in many cases that's because they did work well for dance. And, you know, weren't particularly difficult to remember or learn, or especially if, you know, I know that discussion has been made about learning by ear versus reading music. And mm -hmm. it is true that, you know, learning, getting it in your head by ear, I think it settles in more and you sort of own the tune more. Whereas if you read it, you kind of know the tune mm -hmm. and, and in time playing it long enough, then it can settle into the same place. But especially a tune coming from a tradition, it's, you know, the dots don't tell you really how the phrases are put together and where the ornaments yeah. go, unless you're really already pretty familiar with that that tradition. Yeah, you have to be able to get to the place where you can grok the tune. Yeah, yeah. You know, where you could just get it. Yeah, and that and just... it's hard to do that off the page. That's true. I mean, after a lot of tunes and a lot of time, it gets easier, I think. Mm-hmm, yeah. But that's, you know, that takes doing a lot of ear work at jam sessions or whatever, and off recordings. So I guess I... I, I hope that tradition holds, but I think also tradition broadens with time. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look back at the 70s, the notion of playing like a Scottish tune or an Irish tune for contradance was pretty controversial in some circles. Mm -hmm. and Or Quebecois. And, and now they're all considered traditional. It's part of the tradition. So one can imagine that continuing to broaden. And it isn't necessarily that we're going to be, you know, playing, I don't know, Okinawan tunes or something. Mm -hmm. But um, just the notion that you could bring in more of a pop element or... Because that's, you know, that folk tunes were the popular music at one time. Now we have this other popular music that's kind of parallel with what we call folk tunes. And so there's a legitimate case for saying that kind of can merge into the tradition. And mm -hmm. um, so I think I think there's a place for both, and I hope they both that continues to be. Yeah. As a player, what do you do to... You know, you say you always want to try to hold on to the roots of where it came from, even while you're innovating. Mm -hmm. How do we hold on to that as a community and as musicians? Yeah, I think part of it is to continue to play some of those tunes. Mm -hmm. And even some of the the newer ones, you know, that have kind of become classics that, that um, 
have gotten around. And, you know, a lot of the things in the Portland collection, for instance, it's kind of the lingua franca, I think, now of <laughs> contra dance, much as the Barnes books are for Eng- for English country dance. Mm-hmm. Um, that and also, I know when I'm writing something that is non-traditional, I'm still keeping in mind the, I try anyway, to keep in mind the essence of what contradance needs and so I think there's still a trace of you know reels and jigs and marches in things that nominally have kind of a Balkan sound or a Latin American sound or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, so you know we haven't brought up the topic of techno um, Please, but I think that, that's something. That topic, I know you can uh, address well. Um, I'm less experienced. I've danced to techno on occasion, um, and <clears throat> I think it's part of the beauty of contra dance is that it's something that can be done to, you know, to the music that is used for techno contra dances. Yeah, all sorts of. We could call them electronically infused music, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, in some cases, the caller has to call for longer because the, you know, there isn't a band there. Well, in your case, the, like with um, uh, Buddy System, when you're doing your techno thing, you are there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of cases, it's a DJ, right, who's doing it. And that's just a different kind of experience. And in a lot of cases, the music has been structured to reinforce the, you know, 32 bar kind of phrase nature, but not always. And so one of the things, I mean, there's really, so the thing probably I love most about contra dance music is that it is very flexible. Contra dance. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you have certain rules that you need to, you know, that in tempo, in phrase structure, that have to be there or else it's not going to work. But mm-hmm. once you satisfy those, especially with an experienced dance crowd that doesn't like need a melody there all the time, for instance, mm-hmm. there's so much room for free, imp- you know, improvisation, especially when you're playing with people you've played with for a long time. And you're all dancers, so you're kind of mindful of not losing the place. But, you know, going as far as you can while still keeping a certain amount of landmarks and structure in place. I, I mean, that's just so much fun. And you get this instant feedback from the dancers. And um, so that anyway, I, I think I started answering a different question there. But I think that the, having the tradition broaden and embrace more of that, I think, is a fine thing, as long as mm-hmm. we don't replace, like, you know, with the new shiny stuff, replace the older um, tried and true um, things that have worked for contra dance, at least for decades, if not centuries. It depends. Yeah. So. And maybe it, it means like, you know, how do we do that when 
there's there's no one dance that does it all. Like some communities want modern dances and modern tunes, and there's other communities where they do older dances and they do chestnuts every week. And you yeah. know, you don't always get the same dancers who go to both. Yeah, it's, it's but a, I f- it's a challenge for a band, I think. Yeah. Um, go ahead and finish your thought. Well, I, I was just saying, like, I think um, it's I think there's a little bit of the onus on a new dance musician or a new caller to seek out all these different kind of things and try to understand them and get to the root of what is traditional contra music. So that even if you don't play like that, it is the foundation of your playing somewhere, yes. you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's no longer compulsory, but it's important to have played, you know, at least the basic um, chestnuts, you know, mm-hmm. and I probably throw Money Musk in with that, but you know, Petronella, Rory O'More, chorus jig, um, maybe Lamplighter's Hornpipe. I don't know. There's there's some others that aren't done as much, but um, and I'm sure I'm missing a few. And but just so that when somebody says do chorus jig, you know, maybe even have opera reel as the switch tune or whatever. It doesn't matter. There's lots of other mm-hmm. good switch tunes for chorus jig. But um, because it's nice, it's, it's like that. that's a path back to the sort of a, a connection to that tradition. Yeah. And, you know, you can take traditional tunes, like I was mentioning, sort of a disco funk grumbling old man, you know, do, you can treat them in different ways as opposed to playing new tunes. But it's also fun just to go back to that straight ahead, you know, channeling Bob McQuillan kind of um, style. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and being able to, it's like as much as being able to play some of these traditional tunes, but also to be able to do that New England-inspired contract groove, Mm -hmm. that kind of boom chuck groove. And, you know, there's a story. I'll change some of the details. Um, But, like, uh, I was in a, you know, those, like, things that aren't bands i call them clumps like contra clumps where you're like an ensemble of people who play together once in a while but you're sure. not a band yeah it's like you all know each other um, and you know it's yeah yeah you play together occasionally but you don't try to make it a thing so you're all too busy right. um but i had a, a clump and i wasn't available for one of the gigs that they wanted to do and so they got a different piano player and he was younger and newer but not totally new he was played a lot and they said okay can you play boom check for this tune and he's like boom chuck <laughs> and so they had to teach him in the rehearsal how to play boom chuck on the piano and he had played contradances a lot of mm-hmm. contradances in various places and didn't know boom chuck um and you know it's it's totally possible now to be in, a musician and not get exposed to this yeah and not play it but I think it's worth seeking it out. I'm not saying you have to, like you said, you don't, mm-hmm. it's not a requisite, but it's worth seeking it out. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, boom check is something that appears in so many different genre too. I mean, I know, you know, it's like Serbian music. I mean, there's a lot of places where you can end up with that, um, you know, Oktoberfest stuff or whatever. I mean, yeah. And it, yeah. Oh, that reminds me full circle. It reminds me of polkas. You mentioned in your bio, I think, that you like Brave Combo. That's fun. Oh, my fun. goodness, I'm a, yes. I'm a big, big Brave Combo fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I think, Mary's favorite group in particular. We got to see them once or twice. 
Yeah, Brave Combo and another favorite of mine was Three Mustafas Three, although they're not together anymore. But they were more they they're both really world music. You know, they they draw from a lot of places. But Brave Combo's utterly shameless, which I just love. And they yeah. they have these brilliant treat something in some completely different way. Um, yeah. It's and, very irreverent. <laughs> yeah. And um yeah, I remember I mean, like I'll I'll do the hokey pokey to Brave Combo to their disco funk version of it anytime. So. Well, this has been so fun to talk to you. I feel like we could just talk about music all night. We but could. sadly, we I can't keep you here forever. <laughs> is is there anything else that you'd like to touch on while we're talking today? I was trying to think about that. I think we've covered a lot. <laughs> um, I know what. Um, what was I thinking about? Well, you were talking about kind of tying the tradition to new things. I mean, I remember one of the bands that I really admire, and I think to this day is probably my favorite, although Cleef Strutter is up there, but Nightingale mm-hmm. was this, you know, they had a definite sound and they had, you know, an eclectic background, but they could be just solid as a rock. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, kind of an example of a um, a group that sort of integrates the new with the traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's kind of a good example going forward of, you know, I think a, a band starting out definitely should be taking a look at other bands and who they want to emulate and... Um, and I do think, you know, learning, learning the traditions and, um, or it's definitely a key thing, but also kind of deciding, and it could happen organically, but what is your place in this world as a, as a band? And there's plenty of room for bands that are like other bands, of course. Mm-hmm. But, um, a lot of times there's an opportunity to do something new just because of what you bring with you to the party. Yeah. Well, in your case, you've brought a lot of things to the party for many years and <laughs> well, given a lot you. of people a lot of fun. Oh, I and hope so. That's what I, that's what I love to do, want to do. Yeah, and it's been so wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. You're a great listener. I felt like I've talked a lot. <laughs> So many things we could talk about forever. It's fun to listen to. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!